Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I I think the first thing we need to say, at least for me, is um, forgive me. Forgive us. There have been times when those signs represent our hearts. And um, there's nothing amazing about um, that hatred. We sing of amazing grace and we talk about loving God and loving people and somehow, some way, we've gotten off the track and we just want to tell you that we're sorry. Father, we have gathered here today at least one expression of your kingdom. We have gathered here today to set the record straight about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a, a disciple, to be a person of the way. And Father, those things don't, um, don't inform us, they don't help us, and they certainly don't help the world. And so, Father, my heart today is about this, that the Spirit of God would move among us in a very powerful way, literally brooding among us. And that as we open your word, you would open our hearts to hear, to see, to know, to feel, to believe the truth of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. To that end, Father, we pray your blessing on this word and upon our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, welcome to week number three in the series that we have entitled, What is a Christian? So far, Uh, We have discovered that the word Christian was first used in the first century, only used three times in the Bible. And each time it was used in the Bible, it was speaking people outside the church looking in at this group of Christ followers and calling them Christian. So it wasn't a term that was used among the Christians themselves or the believers themselves, but uh, it was used from outside. And also that term was very derogatory. Uh, Nero coined it, and others used it, but it's very derogatory. It's like, those people. You know, like we say, oh, those geeks, or, or those wops, or something like that. It was just very critical, very negative, uh, very politically incorrect. That was the formation of the word Christian. And the name of Jesus follows, uh, Jesus, fo- Jesus followers came and they started describing themselves, and they described themselves in two ways. One was people of the way, that's used one time in the Bible. Then many, 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 many times they described themselves as disciples. Very good. Front row always knows, and uh, that's, uh, that's great because they're listening. And uh, so, disciple. Now, the reason uh, this is such a big deal is that the word Christian can be defined any way you want it to be. Because it's not defined in the Bible. So the word Christian can be defined by you any way you want it to be. For you, a Christian could mean an American. It could mean a Westerner. It could mean somebody that doesn't believe in abortion. It could mean somebody that goes to church. It could mean somebody that that, that believes in God. It could mean somebody that is a Republican or a Democrat. It can mean anything you want. So the word Christian really doesn't help us and it certainly doesn't Inform us. That's why on any side of any political issue, every legal issue, every battle, every educational issue, you will find uh, Christians on both sides of the issue. 
wherever you find conflicts in the world, world wars, international conflicts, again, you will find Christians on both sides of the issue. So you'd think to yourselves, at least I have, uh, why, why can't we just get along? I mean, aren't we all Christians? In fact, somebody told that to Sherry one time. He said, why don't we all just get along? Aren't we all Christians? Well, yeah, except we all have a different definition of what that means. So that's why we don't get along, right? So we see our history unfolding and something's very wrong. Now, whether you agree on such fundamental issues or subjects that Christianity kind of opens up, the one thing you have to agree on is that that word Christianity or Christian is not defined. So we refer to ourselves now as disciples or people of the way. Now, a disciple is a very scary term. In fact, it's a very terrifying term. And the reason it's terrifying is it's just the opposite of Christian. The word Christian can be, de- uh, can be defined any way you want it to. So you can say, I'm a Christian, and define that yourself. But the word disciple is very scary because it's narrow and it's very clear as to what it means. Now, over the years, Christian has become about, Christianity has become about what you believe. And at one level, that's good. Uh, in other words, I, I, I believe this in their form of Christian. I, I believe uh, in the scriptures, their form of Christian. Uh, I believe in Jesus, their form of Christian. I believe in God, their form of Christian. But, um, but, but it's different when you start talking about specifics. Now, being a follower of Christ in Jesus' day, in the Bible times, was much more about what you did than what you believed. Now, that great late theologian, Steve Jobs, <laughs> a recently deceased, uh, the megastar of, of Apple, said this in a biography. The juice goes out of Christianity when the emphasis is on faith rather than living like Jesus lived or seeing the world like Jesus saw it. Now, from a person who didn't really claim to be a believer, I'm not really sure whether he was or not, this is pretty insightful. Yeah, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe in redemption. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe, I believe, I believe. That's all good. But you know what? So does Satan. He believes all that stuff, too. So there's got to be something else, right? What are you doing about it? What are you doing about your beliefs? Jesus says, let me be very clear. Gentlemen, 11 disciples up, press the ear, move in closely. I want to tell you exactly what this means. I want to show you. I've washed your feet. I'm now going to die on the cross. I want to show you what it means to be a disciple. I want you to remember this. This matters more than anything else. Everything that is in the Bible has been summarized in this one phrase. And then Jesus goes and he tells them, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my what? Disciples, if you love one another. John 13, 34, and 30. Not Christians, but disciples. Now this becomes very narrow. This is, now this is more difficult. Because I can't just define a disciple. A disciple is one who does what Jesus does and says what Jesus says and believes what Jesus believes and lives how Jesus lives. Now that's too narrow for most of us. That's hard. That's difficult. I'd much rather be a Christian. See, what John was saying is that it's not by what you do on Sundays. It's not even really about what you believe always, but how you treat each other. Now, today and in the next couple of weeks, I want to be very specific uh, about what this looks like. 
And we're going to look at Jesus' words. We're going to look at Paul's words. And we're going to recognize what a disciple looks like. Now, in two main categories, this week we're going to look at what it means to be a disciple when it comes to looking at and treating and behaving and living with people outside the, outside the fold, right? People who are non-believers, people who are non-disciples, people who have not made that choice, it is a choice, and, and people who say, you know, that's just not who I am, that's not me. And so, and the next week we're going to look at people within the church, how we treat each other. But, but how do we treat those who are outside of what we call believers in Jesus Christ? So, that's what we're going to look at. Now, the church, this, this, this just troubles me. I, I love history, and that's part of my, one of my hobbies is reading history books. And what troubles me is that this foundational truth hasn't been communicated very well in the last, you know, 1700 years it just hasn't it's it's just not not it's not in our consciousness as christians so what i'm going to talk about today this isn't new because it's in the bible but maybe it's a new way of looking things now one one thing i i will say this that i i promise you some of you today will be offended okay i promise you that okay and if you're not come back next week and i'll do my best to offend the rest of you uh, now, now, but, but remember, it's not me. Try and remember that. You know, we're going to talk about the Bible, not Dwayne's thoughts, right? So, so, so when followers of Jesus, disciples, as a group, decided they were eventually going to be called Christians, we might as well call each other Christians because eventually that happened. Um, here, here's the truth. When we try and leverage anything other than love, we lose influence. Let me say that again. When we try to leverage anything other than love, we lose influence. Now, what happened in history, and the church got too powerful, and we decided that we could use other things than love. Things began to deteriorate, and things began to go wrong. And Jesus was very clear, not only the John 13 passage as he talked to the disciples, but as he was talking to all of the followers of Jesus before he ascended into heaven, he gave them that last, last final go get them at, we call it, uh, you know, the great uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and this is what he said. He said to them, go and make Christians. Oh, wait a second. No, that's not right. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, that phrase, make disciples, means literally to call someone to be a follower. It's kind of invite them into your life, invite them into your sphere. It's not, um, you better love Jesus. It's not that at all. It's kind of like calling, it's kind of trying to engulf them into your life. That's what it means to make disciples. Um, and in other words, Jesus was saying, and, uh, uh, and Matthew records it in this way, uh, John recorded it in John 13. I want you to go out, and I want you to act in such a way, and I want you to teach in such a way, and I want you to speak in such a way, and I want you to love in such a way that the world would become my followers. Okay, that, that's what the Great Commission is about. Uh, I, to all of us as believers, th- this is what God has called you to do. I want you to go out into the world and live in such a way, love in such a way, act in such a way, behave in such a way, that people will look at your life and look at the community of faith, and they will say, okay, I, I want that. That's something I want. Now, that's the Great Commission. Somehow we've gotten it kind of upside down. And for the first 300 years of history, it worked. It worked. 
hundreds of thousands of people gave their hearts to Christ. The world was being transformed for 300 years. These were believers were going out and loving each other and loving the sinners and loving those who were doing the wrong things and doing everything in their power to enfold them, to make disciples. And it was working. And it worked so well. And there became so many Christians that Rome took notice. Man, this movement is getting big. We tried to squash it. <laughs> we, we tried really hard. Nero, Tiberius, you know, Domitian, Diocletian, you know, Claudius. We tried to squash that thing in the first hundred years and we just couldn't do it. So we, then we just kind of left them alone, right? And once we left, I mean, this group just grew like wild fire. It was just unbelievable. They were making disciples. That's exactly what the church did for 300 years. They had no political leverage, none whatsoever. They had no influence as a group other than individuals in individuals' lives. What they did have was love. And here's, here's the point, if you don't remember anything else today of this message. Love was enough. Loving each other and loving other people, it was enough. These disciples would live in such a way, they would love in such a way, they would die in such a way that it caused people all over the world to peer over the edge of this thing called Christianity by now. Peer over the edge of the church and say, you know, I don't know all that's going on with these people, but I want to be like them. That's what I want to be like. Because my life over here is not working. It's not working. Somehow, some way, they're weird, of course, we know that, but I want to be like that group. See how they love one another. See how the husbands treat their wives. That's different from the rest of the world. See how employees treat their employers and how they treat their job with integrity and respect and honor. See how the teenagers going off to school don't buy into all the sex and drug stuff. They say, no, I'm, I'm living a different way. They're not condemning anybody else, but they're saying, you know, that's just not what I do. That's, I'm a Christ follower. And then something happened. For 300 years, love was enough. Then um, Rome, Emperor of Rome, 313, Constantine. Great leader, great man from all that we know. But Constantine became a follower of Jesus. He became a Christian. And this is when the trouble started. You know, sometimes you say, well, that should be when things get better. Well, <laughs> this is when the trouble started because Constantine decided that if Christ is good enough for me, <laughs> he's good enough for everybody. And so Constantine started making being a Christian a requirement. And everything, friends, everything for the next 1,700 years got totally turned upside down. It's like now you've got to be a Christian. At one point, Constantine had a, a, a regiment of soldiers and they were going to go to battle against the Turks, the pagans, the non-Christians. You know, they're non-Christians. Let's go and, you know, kill them. You know, that'll help everything. And so that, that was kind of their view. These are bad people. Let's go kill them. So... Uh, 
Constantine had this regiment of soldiers who were not Christians. And this is right beginning at the beginning of his reign as, as, as not, only, um, uh, not only the uh, emperor, but now the church is kind of, they're kind of connecting the church and, and the empire. Dangerous stuff, dangerous stuff, the church and the empire. So they're doing that, and Constantine tells this regiment of soldiers, you're going to be baptized, <laughs> you're going to be Christians, okay? Certainly not disciples, but you're going to be Christians. So I want you to march into that river, and we're going to baptize you. But when you march into that river, make sure that you keep your sword raised aloft. Because we, Constantine, we said, we don't want your sword to be baptized, because that's got to kill all the bad people. But the rest of you, you know, including your head and your soul, we want that to be baptized. So this was what was happening in this fourth and then fifth and later on centuries. It's like they changed the Great Commission. Here's what they changed the Great Commission to. Therefore, Go and impose my teaching and my values on all nations, threatening them with judgments and destructions if they don't do everything I've commanded you. Ah, now that's something I can live with, Constantine said. That's how it started to feel, to impose, to teach, to threaten, to judge if you don't conform. A huge change. Why do you think there was the Inquisition? Why do you think there was the Dark Ages? See, the difference is this. Jesus always exerted power under. Power under is serving. It's washing somebody's feet. It's dying on the cross for their sins. It's not putting yourself over somebody. It's putting yourself under them. Starting with Constantine, and this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, the church started exerting power over. Be a Christian. Don't you dare sin around me. Don't you dare do that. And there was this power over and this. And why do you think? See, a lot of wars have been fought. We think because of oil. And that's true in a lot of ways. But a lot of wars have been fought fought in the name of Jesus. God, forgive us. God, forgive us that there's this power over. For the first 300 years, Jesus said, I want you to live in such a way I want you to love in such a way. I want you to die in such a way that will cause people to look in and say, I, I want that. Now, Paul said it a different way. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said it this way. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Is, is that not an absolutely beautiful expression of power under? <laughs> I'm putting myself under you. If I have to be a slave to you, to the Jews, I'll be a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'll be a Gentile. To the pagans, I'll be a pagan. I'll do whatever I will, whatever I can, in order to win one more for Jesus Christ. When we tell you that that's our slogan, that's our mission, that's our vision as a church, to win one more for Jesus Christ, this is exactly what we're talking about. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Not power over. The power under. To win, that's that phrase, go and make disciples. And that's exactly what Paul did. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Now, have you ever won uh, a contract, if you're in business, or uh, have you ever won someone's heart? Um, I have. I mean, when I was 20 years old, I won the heart of, I guess I was 20 years old. No, I was like, 20, yeah, 20 years old. I won the heart of, of this young lady right here. 
And I didn't do it by having power over. <laughs> I let her believe that uh, I love to talk on the phone for hours. <laughs> I made myself a servant. <laughs> I let her believe that I would uh, love to go to the theater. Are you kidding me? Instead of a football game? Yeah, I'd love to do that. And, 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 and I won her heart power under. And, and that's what we all do. It's not about imposing will or force. But looking your best, being your best. Paul said, I'll place myself under them, anyone, a slave, in order to win them for Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, the church decided not to leverage love one another, power under, but instead to do it a different way, to leverage power over. Salem, Massachusetts. You pick it. Historically, there are thousands of examples of how the church exerted power over, and God weeps when that happens. Whenever the church, whenever disciples choose to leverage anything else but love, the church loses. And worse yet, the world loses. Who's going to win them to Christ? Who's going to make them disciples if all you get is that stuff that you see on those posters and the angry and the hatred and the imposition and the judgment and the condemnation? Who's going to win come to Christ because of that? See, the gospel, like Steve Jobs said, loses its juice. Loses its power. Now, I want to dive a little bit deeper. Uh, Paul is groundbreaking here. Everything Paul is saying is groundbreaking. What he says about women, what he says about um, Gentiles, what he says about pagans, what he says about Jews, everything's changed. Because now everybody's equal because of Jesus. Galatians 3. Okay, everyone's equal. Same point. And this is all brand new stuff. Now, in 1 Corinthians, he teaches us practically what this looks like. Now, uh, he's, he's writing, he writes two letters to Corinth. Now, Corinth is like uh, the Las Vegas of the first century. You know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, that's kind of what they did. And it was an immoral, decadent city. But yet, all around in the city, there were these little ecclesias, little house churches, uh, Christians gathering and, uh, and loving Jesus and loving each other. And all of this is going on. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus wanted to speak to these ecclesias, these churches. And so he wrote a couple of letters. And uh, we're going to drop into the first letter, uh, chapter 5. Now, um, this is a very juicy part of the Bible. Can, can I say this? You've got to read your Bible. It's really good. And this is a really juicy part of the Bible, talking about sex and stuff like that. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 5.1, uh, Paul wants to address in this text, he wants to talk about two things. How do we deal with things in the church that go wrong? Okay, that's one thing. But then also, how do we deal with people outside of the church? Okay, so let's look at those two things. That's what Paul's talking about in this really juicy piece of Scripture. Uh, chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Now, the actual translation is a man is living in sin with his stepmother. Okay, and we would say, "Ooh, gross, you know, but you know what? The world would say that, too. <laughs> the world would say, you know, we don't even do that stuff. You Christians are goofballs, you know, and that's happening in the church. And, and we don't do that. And yet you're doing that. So Paul uh, Paul saying, man, this has got to stop. This is no good. And I mean, we have a standard of morality as believers based on Jesus life and his teaching. We have a standard of morality. We want to stick to that. And that's not the same standard of morality for the people outside the church, but we have a standard for morality. And uh, even the pagans wouldn't do that weird stuff. So, so, uh, so this guy gets hooked up with his stepmother, and it's weird. And, uh, the, and now the early church is not like hope. The early church had maybe 40, 50 people in each of these little ecclesias, these churches. 
And uh, everybody knew everybody's business. You know, so so it's kind of like they knew what was going on. It's not like at Hope, you know, where, you know, you can get away with stuff and we'll never know it. You say, oh, that's awesome. I love that church. Yeah, you can get away with stuff. We'd never even know it. But but here that didn't happen. And so here's what happened. Verse uh, two. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, Paul writes to these ecclesias, I am with you in spirit and I have all listen. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. And you go, whoa, Paul, wait, wait a minute, Paul, Paul, doesn't the Bible say that we're not supposed to judge? And then how dare you do that, Paul? And then Paul would say, wait a minute. You know, I wrote the Bible. <laughs> you, you, oh, OK, sorry, I forgot. You know, I, I wrote that. I, the, the spirit of God inspired me. And so I wrote this part of the Bible. And, and so but then the people say, well, we're confused. Then We're confused. Are we supposed to judge or not? Let me say that this is really important. And this is the second thing I said earlier that if you remember one thing, I really didn't mean that. If you remember this thing, this is all you need to remember. And it's this. The Bible does not teach us not to judge. The Bible teaches us who to judge. Let me say that again, because some of you are going to be offended. If you have to go to the bathroom, wait a few minutes, because if you leave right now, I'll think you got offended. The Bible does not teach us not to judge, but who to judge. Now, this is where we get confused. Uh, This is why people outside the church are confused with us and and are mad at us. And this is why the church in general is kind of mad at the rest of the world. Okay, because of this passage. Verses four and five. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man who what man this man who did this in the in the Ecclesia. He's a he's a disciple. He's done this in the Ecclesia. Um, And you say, well, where's the woman in all this? We'll get to that. Uh, So this man hand this man over to Satan. Wow, that sounds harsh. So that sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So you say, where's the woman? Well, the woman, most likely, was not part of the ecclesia. You know, this weird stuff that was going on, she was outside the church. There's a different standard of judgment for her than there is for him. So this, there's this legal term uh, that says, uh, when you says give, give yourself over to Satan, it's a legal term that means that you're putting the guy in the custody of Satan. Okay? It's still pretty harsh, but it, it maybe helps you understand. In other words, okay, this guy's already chosen to go Satan's route and this route, this immoral, this wrong route. He said, so, okay, go for it. Now, you're going to come back to your faith. We know it because you love Jesus, but you're just really goofy right now. You come back to your faith. But for the time being, you're not coming to small group. And you're not coming to worship. And it's not because we don't love you. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's because we do love you that we're saying, stay away, feel the full weight of your sin. This is God's standards. This is God's morality standard. Feel the full. And then when you get right with God, you come back, we'll embrace you, we'll love you, and it'll be awesome. So it's like this guy has a new parole officer. His parole officer is Satan. Okay? So, that's what, so here's my best guess that Paul's saying, if you choose this lifestyle, you can't just show up and drink coffee at small group. I mean, that, that's not going to happen. Because that, that's kind of an infection in the church, and that's just not going to happen. So we want you to get right with God. We'll meet with you one-on-one, and we'll minister to you. We'll love you. We'll, we'll, do, we'll embrace you, do whatever. But you're not coming to the assembly until you get this thing right, because there's a standard that we have as Christ followers that we have signed off on. 
We've as disciples, we've signed off on this. Okay, these are Paul's teachings and Jesus' teachings. We, this is what we do. And if you don't do that, you have to separate yourself, feel the full weight of your sin. But you come back when you're right, and that's all good. So that's what that was about. Okay. Uh, in other words, the wages of sin is death, and sometimes that death is in the form of an addiction or memories or physical consequences. Uh, but you need to feel the full dose of this. So we're not going to hang out with you until you get this thing right. Then Paul goes on, and it's like Paul is saying, "Oh, wait a minute." You know, I'm, you know, I'm probably confusing you, talking to the church, talking to hope, right? I'm probably confusing you because I'm talking about how that you're supposed to literally judge one another, not in a condemning way at all, but in the way you come along and put your arm around somebody and say, you know what, the way you're going is not working because it's against what God says, and I love you too much to let you do that, and let's figure this out to you. That's what it means. It's not this, this kind of a thing. And so, but you're supposed to judge each other in the church, and Paul says, you know, I think I've confused you. So let me tell you something. Let me give you another part of this. So we pick it up in verse 9. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. Well, let's stop right at verse 10. What? Where'd that come from? Well, Paul says, I think you're confused. Now, I'm not talking about the people of this world who are immoral. They're immoral because they're of this world. And they're not Jesus people, and they haven't signed off on this, and they haven't made this choice. Don't condemn them. They're just, that's who they are. Okay, that's who they are. And then, or the greedier swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. You know, if you wanted to not be around any of those people, you know, you can't stay around. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself what? A brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. Verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now, this is great teaching. Why the church, <laughs> why the church hasn't gotten this for 1,700 years, I don't know. Why the church doesn't, and some do, uh, some ecclesias, and I'd like us to be one of those ecclesias that we really get this thing right. He said, why on earth do you think you should judge the world? They haven't signed off on this Jesus thing. They haven't said that they're followers of Jesus. Why on earth would you point at them and say, you've got to do sex the way we do sex? Now, we do sex because this is what God has shared. This is my best for you, and this is what I want for you. And so we try to do that. That's, that's, that's a, a morality level within the body of Christ, within Christ's followers, because God says, I love you, and I want the best for you. And so that's why I want you to do it this way. But outside the church, why would we impose our standards upon the world and say, you need to do things the way we do. That's all those angry signs up there. Don't judge by your standard of behavior those who are outside the faith. And here's what Paul says, and this is kind of hard to hear, but this is what he says. It's none of your business. I'll tell you what your business is. To love those people with every fiber of your being. How can you love them? If you say, Ooh, all those tattoos. Ooh, look at all those rings in your, look at the way your pants hang down below your, your rear end. You know, as soon as you get to that point, this idea of condemning and pointing things, instead of, I just love you and I want to be in your life and I want to take you out to coffee and I want to show you by the way I live and by the way I love and even if necessary, and they did in the first century, by the way I die, that, that what matters more than anything else is to love you. 
Why hasn't the church gotten this? It makes me so sad. We have a sign out front of our church, no perfect people allowed. Last Sunday, we had three new families that came to the 10-minute party. All three of them said we came because of the sign out front, no perfect people allowed. So on one level, the sign means this. And you, you can make it mean whatever you want, but uh, Brad and I, 12 years ago, stole it from somebody else, and now everybody thinks that we're smart enough to have made it up. But um, it means this. You know, um, it means they're, they're, in here there are no perfect people. That's what it means. Okay, so that's what. But it also means something to the world outside of us, those who are not Christ followers. Uh, it, it means this: uh, we don't expect you to be perfect. You come to your church. You come to our church with any kind of a sexual persuasion, any kind of a theological or or a political persuasion. We don't care. I mean that that's that's your business. You know, if you do come to our church, all we're asking is one thing: what does it mean for you to consider what it means to take one step closer to God? That's all. You know, that's all we ask. You know, we're not expecting you to conform to us. We're not expecting you to live like us. We're not expecting any of that because because it's none of our business. How you live your life, it's none of our business, how you do your sex, it's none of our business, what movies you go to, it's none of our business. What we want to do is just love you. We don't want to condemn you. Don't expect non-disciples to have the same morality or ethics that we do. The church has been doing that for centuries. Especially we see that in the political realms. Very sad to me. To look outside the church to non-Jesus people and to throw stones at them because they don't live like we do. Paul would say, it's none of your business. I'll tell you what your business is. You go and love them. Let's give you a really good example. An example you've used often. In fact, you've even scratched your head about it. I have. So Jesus is very hard on the Pharisees. He pounds them. He says, you're whitewashed sepulchers. You guys are not showing the world what, you, what God wants you to see. And, and so he would just pound on the, uh, the, the Pharisees. So these are the religious guys, the guys that go to Sunday school and pay their tithe and do all the right things. So he, and he just pounds them. And then he comes across a woman who is guilty of adultery, probably multiple times. We don't really know. Guilty of adultery. She's laying there in the street. The Pharisees all have a stone. They're going to stone her because the Bible, the law says that they can do that. And Jesus comes up, and you know the story. Well, how, how, what's going on here? Well, this woman was taken adultery. Oh, and Leviticus says we're supposed to stone her because, you know, she's bad. And, and okay, okay, well, why don't we do it a little bit differently, Jesus said. Why don't we have one of you that are standing around her, the one of you that uh, doesn't have any sin, that you've never, you know, uh, because you're, you know, you're God followers, you're religious people. Obviously, most of you are probably perfect. And the one of you that's perfect, throw the first stone. Well, you know what happens. You know, Jesus looks at the woman again. He looks up and they're all gone. You know, they did, like the rapture came in the first century. You know, whoo, what happened? And so, so this woman's like, now what does Jesus say to her? This is so awesome and it's so beautiful. What does Jesus say? I don't condemn you. He said, well, wait a minute. But Jesus says to the church that you're not supposed to commit adultery. And here's why. And it, it hurts everybody and it, it breaks your heart. And it's, it, it, it's bad. You know, and why isn't he telling her that? I'll tell you, because she's not inside the church. She's not in sight. She hasn't chosen to follow Jesus yet. We trust that she did, but she's not a Christ follower. I don't condemn you. Now, honey, listen, this life that you're living is not working. Please go and live a different way. And listen, the next time you're thinking about committing adultery or turning a trick or whatever you do, you know, next time you think about that here, I want you to remember one thing. I want you to remember how I looked at you in your eyes. And I want you to remember how I loved you. And I saved you. 
And I want you to remember that I said I do not condemn you. And when you hear and feel and sense and believe that, maybe you'll say, I want to be part. I want to be a Jesus follower. And then once you sign on to be a Jesus follower, then everything changes. Do you see what I'm saying, church? This is the gospel. This is the gospel. So often we've got stones in our hands ready to throw at some political figure or some person outside the church that's done a terrible thing. And what we need to do is to find a way to love them. In the household of faith, certainly we've decided to follow Jesus. And that means a lot of things. And it means that we're supposed to get in each other's face sometimes. And say, don't you dare leave your wife and go to be with that other woman. Don't you dare. You are a Jesus follower. And that is wrong. And I will not, I'll put myself in front of your car. I will not, I love you too much to let you live that way. That's what Jesus followers do. They don't condemn somebody after the act is committed. That's what they do. Paul concludes in that passage and says, God will judge the outside. You don't have to worry about the the murderers and the the bad people out there. The Bible says God will judge them. Now, I'm not talking about, and you you don't understand this. I don't have to say it, but I will. I'm not talking about civil laws, you know, governmental laws. You know, we all have to obey those. Otherwise, we have chaos. I'm not talking about obeying, you know, know, I'm I'm a disciple. I don't have to, you know, look at that red light. No, okay, be, be reasonable. You know what we're talking about. We're talking about inside the church, the moral, ethical laws that God has given us in order to live each other with each other and love each other and do it in a way that will give you the best opportunity to have the best life. That's what we're talking about. So what's what's the big deal? And I just want to speak truth here and then we're going to close in just a moment. I, I tried to figure out how to say this. And so uh, in a book I read, I, I heard this. So I'm, I stole this from Andy Stanley because he's from the South and it sounds cool. So here's what I want to tell you. The point that Paul is making is judge the believing, not the heathen. Okay? Now, um, somebody, who was it? Somebody just got back from Tennessee. Oh, yeah, Jim and Debbie's selling. They're in Sunday school class right now. But I want you to say this with me. Say this with me. And say it with your southern accent, okay? The point that Paul is making is judge the believing, not the heathen. Okay? So I get uh, in my office two couples that want to be married. One couple is a couple from our church. They're both believers. They come in and they, now don't try and figure out who it is. This is made, this is made up. Okay. Oh yeah. You know, he's talking to Josh and Stephanie. No, 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 no. no. Okay. So a, a couple comes in from our church and uh, they're both believers and uh, they're living together. And so I lean over my desk and I say, you know what, you guys, you love Jesus. I know that you love Jesus. Do you know that what you're doing, you're, you're settling for? This isn't God's best for you. Let me show you the scriptures. Why? Let me show you what it means to have this, this purity in your relationship, in your life that God calls you to. And, and so you have that really tough discussion, right? And, 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 you, and you invite them to do the right thing. Stop living together until you're married. You know, you do that. And I've done that hundreds of times to couples. But there's another couple. I get these all the time. Couples not in our church, but maybe somebody that you know. And you say, you know, see, Pastor Dwayne will marry you. I say, I'll marry you if you will go through six weeks of counseling. And when I say that, it sounds really easy to them. <laughs> we like get them in my office, you know. Yeah, you know. So I get it. And, and immediately it's obvious because this is the way the world behaves. They live together. 
I say, so you guys, okay, why'd you make this choice living together? Well, I mean, and they're thinking I'm going to hammer them. I say, well, okay, uh, if you want to know my opinion about that uh, as a believer, how we see that inside the church, how we see that as Jesus followers, I'll be happy to share that with you. But uh, I'm, I'm, that's not my business. I mean, I'm going to do whatever I can, the best thing I can do to help those two young people have the best chance at a marriage they possibly can have. And part of that is I'll spend an entire session sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them and inviting them to give their hearts to Christ. So that's part of the whole process. But you see how you deal with with two different couples in two different ways. Now, as a Christ follower, which one is going to be the one that draws someone into faith in Jesus? I want to live in such a way. And I want to love in such a way. I I want to love you and my wife and my children, my grandchildren, my church my neighbors, my enemies. I want to live in such a way. And I want to love in such a way. And if God calls me to, I want to die in such a way that people will look in my life and say, you know what, Dwayne, you're kind of goofy, but I want this. I want this. I have never led someone to Christ with my finger in their face. Never once. In fact, I've never had a second chance to tell those people about Jesus. God has called us to something great, church. And I want us to be a part of it. I want us to look around each other and look at the world. And I want the world to look at us and say simply, see how they love one another. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, um, I I pray for our, our church this morning. I pray for Hope Covenant Church, my church, a church that I've been a part of for 12 years. And I love each of these people. And Lord, I pray that this word today would uh, infect them. I heard this morning about one person who literally said they're changing the way they're being known. They're now known as a Christ follower instead of a Christian. And Father, I pray that it would not be some cute little trick or some uh, cutesy thing that we might do to make ourselves feel better, but that we would start living like disciples and by loving each other enough to confront each other within the body of Christ. And for those who are outside the body of Christ, instead of pointing our finger, instead of judging or condemnation, to simply say, let me know how I can love you and love you so much that you ask why. Lord, that's my heart for our church. I just pray now that you would be with us. Help us to consider this. Help us to chew this. Help us to believe this by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen.